So the title of this morning's sermon is The Song of the Vineyard. We will read these verses, and then we'll find ourselves in Luke toward the end of the sermon. So join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the peril of the vineyard workers, wicked tenants that will be looking out in Luke, but really how it's prefigured by these verses in Isaiah and the application um, to Israel, but also even more importantly to us. I pray as we read about this vineyard that we would see the ways in which you would speak to us through this help us to see ways in which you would have us produce fruit and, and even recognize any bad fruit that we're producing. I would just say like this, Lord, use these verses in the most powerful, wonderful ways in our lives as we listen to them being preached. And I pray that this would be a time that I would just be your vessel for you to do that work for your people. We, and I lift up, as I believe I do every Sunday, any unbelievers who have joined us. We thank you for their presence here, but pray that they wouldn't leave as unbelievers, Lord, that you'd grant them repentance and faith, and that they would produce fruit that glorifies Christ. I thank you for this time, Lord, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are working our way through Luke's gospel on Sunday mornings, but we're going to start here in Isaiah 5, because these verses lay the foundation for the parable we'll look at in Luke 20, and more than likely finish next week. So my dad was always a big fan of working outside. Just to give you an idea of how much he enjoyed it, I can remember asking him one time, what his favorite job would be and he said and i'm not kidding working on a railroad in the hot sun (laughs) and he wasn't talking about walking up and down railroad tracks inspecting cars or something along those lines he was talking about laying the ties that would build the track and he did use the words in the hot sun as a kid, I could not imagine many things that sounded more unpleasant than that. And as an adult, I don't think I can imagine many things that sound more unpleasant than that. In fact, I, I think that's what they make inmates in prisons do for punishment. Because Dad liked working outside so much, it seemed like he was always finding things for us to do around the house, even if I didn't really think they were things that needed to be done. And so if I was home on the weekend or during the summer, then I had to work outside with Dad and this is pretty much the same for my brother Jason as well. I tried to get a job as soon as I could for two reasons. First, so that it would allow me to be in a place that had air conditioning, and second, so that I could be doing something where I was getting paid because Dad didn't give us a larger allowance for the times that we worked out outside for him, or with him, maybe for him is accurate as well. (laughs) So one thing that my dad loved having was a garden. I can remember many hours in the backyard on our hands and knees. I think my mom was even with us. Where's mom? Yeah, mom was with us too. It was a family affair. Being on our hands and knees, removing rocks, picking weeds. And dad would come in the house with vegetables that he grew in the garden and ask us to try them. And he was always very proud that he thought these vegetables tasted much better than any vegetables that we could get in the supermarket. It did not matter to me how good those vegetables tasted. I did not think that they were worth the effort. I couldn't understand why we would work that hard for something that we could go to the store to buy for a few dollars. But I suppose that I was probably missing the point, not just for my dad, but for many others, regarding having a garden, and it's the satisfaction from watching things grow. But imagine this. What if you planted a garden and it didn't grow? Or what if you planted a garden, and instead of growing what it was supposed to grow, or produce what it's supposed to produce, it produces something else? That would be very frustrating. 
but this is exactly what happened to god he had a vineyard and it did not produce what it was supposed to produce it would be better if it hadn't produced anything at all it actually produced bad fruit as we'll see and isaiah sings a song about that vineyard that god had in these verses in chapter 5. if you want to go ahead and look at verse 7 quickly with me you can see that this vineyard was israel isaiah 5 7 it says the vineyard of the lord of hosts is the house of israel so there's this song that isaiah sings about god's vineyard and we're told that this vineyard is the house of israel the vineyard produced the wrong kind of fruit isaiah tells us about it in these verses and then jesus elaborates on this song in the parable of the wicked tenants in luke 20. go ahead and look with me at verse 1 to see the song let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill isaiah's speaking in the first person my beloved is his way of referring to god verse 2 he says that his beloved or god dug it cleared it of stones planted this vineyard with choice vines he built a watchtower in the middle of this vineyard he hewed out a wine vat in the middle of this vineyard for the grapes and if you pause there you can see the many wonderful advantages that this vineyard had so it belonged to a loving person isaiah calls him my beloved referring to god the vineyard was planted in a great place it was on a very fruitful hill it says the ground itself was carefully prepared it says that it was dug and it was cleared of stones good plants were used to get this vineyard started it says that they were choice vines the vineyard was protected there was a watchtower in the midst of it and there was provision made for the fruit to be processed there was a vat that was even put in the middle of it to make wine and so my dad would have been very proud of the preparation for this vineyard now consider this verse first corinthians 10 11. it says these things referring to these things in the old testament they happened to israel as an example for us they were written down for our instruction and so this verse tells us that the old testament the record of israel contains examples for us to learn from and so as we look at this account which is the case when you look at most accounts in the old testament it's not a question of whether we should learn from it the question is what should we learn from it and there is much from this account that we can learn from and this brings us to lesson one we should not take god's grace for granted lesson one we shouldn't take god's grace for granted so i was challenged by these verses this week as studying them because i saw god's great care and concern for his vineyard or for israel and god has similarly shown great care and concern for me this vineyard enjoyed many wonderful advantages or blessings and i believe that i too have enjoyed many wonderful advantages or blessings now because of all this if this vineyard did not produce good fruit then it's not a reflection of the owner it is not a reflection of the ground it is not a reflection of the work that went into the vineyard if the vineyard doesn't produce good fruit it is a reflection of the vineyard itself well that challenged me because similarly if i don't produce good fruit it is a reflection of me it is not let's say a reflection of the ground 
of my life. It is not a reflection of the owner of my life, Christ himself. It is not a reflection of the investment that has been made in me. It is a reflection of me. F.B. Meyer wrote, it will be seen then that every soul of man had the chance of becoming a fruitful vineyard. And if it became the reverse, it was due to no failure in either the wisdom or the grace of God. <clears throat> I was having a conversation with Rick DeVos some months back, and he shared something with me that stuck with me. Uh, it helped me appreciate how I had perhaps, not even perhaps, how I have taken God's grace for granted in my life. Uh, Rick was reflecting on his salvation and sharing how blessed he was to be born, not just where he was in the United States, but when he was. So it's not just that, I mean, by a show of hands, is there anyone here who wasn't born <laughs> in the United States? So, it, oh, where, Maria? Where? Okay, that's outside the United States, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so for the rest of us, being born in the United States, very exposed to the gospel, and not just where we're born, but even when we're born, incredible resources available to us. The gospel is so prevalent. A time when our phones can give us access to more sermons than uh, you know, any time in human history that most people ever would have e even heard given multiple lifetimes. And so the, the resources that we have at our fingertips, I mean, it's truly uh, unimaginable. It made me think that I have taken this for granted because there are so many people today who haven't heard the gospel. We call them unreached. There are people who don't have Bibles or they don't have complete Bibles. Most of us have multiple Bibles in our homes. I think about my conversion, and I was surrounded by Christians. I was teaching at this elementary school. God graciously surrounded me by numerous Christians who had been inviting me to church, and then finally when my, when my brother died of a drug overdose, I accepted the invitation, although let's say that groundwork had been being laid by these people inviting me, surrounded by people, at least some of you know one of them, Elwin Ordway. <clears throat> and so they invited me to church. I finally went. I became, because I was separated from my family, the pastor and his family became very close to me. I would say they adopted me, spiritually speaking, as a son in the faith, like Paul did with Timothy, which I really kind of needed because of my estrangement from my family who was upset that I left the Catholic Church. I look back over every season of my Christian life, one of other graces of God as he always surrounded me with godly men. I can't think of a season or chapter of my life that I did not have godly men around me that both I could look up to and that I felt were investing in me. Ed Simmons was the pastor of that church that I was saved in. Uh, Barry Branneman, so Ed Simmons became like the spiritual father to me. Barry Branneman was a man who was the father of three, two girls and a son, a, a, young, a young man. I was very close with his three children. He invested considerably in me. Few people will ever know those names, Ed Simmons, uh, Barry Branneman, but they're very dear to me. Both of them passed away, Ed and Barry, I believe at young ages. Uh, I will always be grateful for them. I wish they had lived longer, long enough to see me become a pastor so that they could appreciate the investment they made in me. This verse comes to mind as I think about them. Hebrews 11:4 says, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Uh, I believe these men, in a sense, they speak through me because the investment, even though they're dead, speak through me. 
because of the investment that they made in me. There's probably some number of things that I say as a result of the hours that these men spent teaching me God's word, discipling me. And I don't mean in, that I was just part of some group. I mean that it was one-on-one. I remember one night up late with, with Barry, and the, I was an elementary school teacher, and it was summer vacation. And I'll just tell you that when you're on summer vacation, you forget that other people have to work, right? And so it was late. Uh, I think I went to his house for a midweek study. Everyone else had left. He's sitting across from me in this chair. And I noticed the time, and it was probably after 11. He had to get up early the next day. I didn't, and so I had forgotten about that. And I said, well, don't you need to get going to bed? And I still remember him vividly saying, don't tell me the time. I don't want to know, know the time. He wanted to just keep talking to me as long. I understand the Bible because because of him. Now, I don't want to talk too much about myself. That's not my point. I'm just trying to give you examples of God's grace in my life, ways that he prepared the vineyard or fertilized the the ground or planted choice vines in my life. You could say these are the ways he cared for me as part of his vineyard, but what I want is I want you to appreciate the ways that God has done the same for you. I want you to think about God's graces in your life, the way that he has prepared that ground for you, that he has chosen choice vines for you, the ways he has cared for you as part of his vineyard, because we can take God's grace for granted. 2 Corinthians 6.1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to, Paul is appealing to the Corinthians, begging them not to take God's grace in their lives in vain. And that's one of the main points of this passage in Isaiah, that they had received so much grace from God, so many wonderful advantages. Verses 1 and 2, just two verses filled with so many beautiful things that God had done for this vineyard, but they took it for granted. Grace is not given because of anything that we have done or could do. If that was the case, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is unmerited or unearned favor, unworked for favor from God. But grace is given because there is work to do. God doesn't give us grace because of works we've done that have earned it, but he does give us grace because of the work that needs to be done. We are not to be passive. After all of God's grace in Israel's life, not surprisingly, he expected fruit to be produced. Look at the rest of verse 2. It says that he came, the owner, this is God, he comes, he looks for the vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The Hebrew word for wild, it's baoshim, baoshim, and it means stinking or worthless things, stinking berries. Didn't even know there was such a thing as stink berries, but if you happen to look up this word in the Hebrew, it will tell you that this is the word for stink berries. So that's what this vineyard produced. Adam Clark said that the wild grapes were poisonous berries, They were not merely useless, they were unprofitable grapes, wild grapes, but grapes that were offensive to the smell, noxious, poisonous. So we're actually dealing with something here that is worse than unfruitfulness. It would have been better if they didn't produce anything, but they produced these wild grapes or stink berries. So you want to talk about taking God's grace for granted. The vineyard produced what we would expect if it had been left alone or the vineyard produced what we would expect if nothing had been done for it. There had been no love shown to it. There had been no care. There had been no time invested. So it looks as though all of God's effort is in vain, or all of his grace was taken advantage of. And this brings us to lesson two. 
we should examine our fruit. We should examine what's being produced in our lives. <clears throat> we use the term fruit inspectors. Typically when we're discussing people's salvation, we'll say something like, I can't say whether this person is saved, and we can't. This is a very reasonable statement to make. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't be fruit inspectors or that we wouldn't ever talk about examining people's fruit, but we'll say, I can't say whether someone's saved, but I can inspect the fruit. And that makes sense because fruit or works are one of the clearest evidences of salvation. We can't tell when someone's saved, but we can look at what's produced from their lives. Jesus said as much, Matthew 7, 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Grapes don't come from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire, thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. So based on these verses, I wasn't challenged to examine the fruit in other people's lives. That wouldn't be my exhortation to you. I wouldn't say, let this be about other people. I would say this should be about us, not so much examining other people's grapes, but examining the grapes from our lives. I was asking myself, what bad fruit am I producing? What wild, wild grapes or stinkberries come from my life? And I'm sure that we all have some. If you happen to think you don't have any stinkberries in your life, well, then you do, and it's pride, right? Pride blinds us to the wild fruit that we produce. The person who wouldn't recognize their weaknesses and struggles would have the struggle of pride that has blinded them to those weaknesses or struggles. So we should examine our fruit, consider what's being produced from our lives. Spurgeon said, has it been so with us? Have we regarded God ungratefully for all of his effort? Have we given him hardness of heart instead of repentance, unbelief instead of faith, indifference instead of love, idleness instead of holy industry, impurity instead of holiness. So we should examine the fruit in our lives. Look what the owner of the vineyard says after examining Israel's fruit in verse 3. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So this is the owner's way of saying that he wants who's to blame for the bad fruit that is being produced. Is it the owner's fault or the vineyard's fault? Now, obviously, a vineyard cannot be blamed for producing the wrong fruit. A farmer doesn't, I'm not making a joke, ever walk out and get upset at his field for not producing what it's supposed to produce. Farming is a very, you know, cause and effect type situation. If a vineyard produces the wrong fruit, the owner versus the vineyard is to blame for that situation. But that's actually the point that the author is making here. The vineyard did not do what was logical and reasonable for the vineyard to do, which was produce good fruit. It did the opposite of what was logical and reasonable based on the investment that had been made. It produced bad fruit. The idea is that God has blessed Israel so abundantly, given them land, that, land that's rich and pleasant, that in return, he expects it to produce good fruit, and instead it produced bad fruit. So Israel is illogical. Israel is unreasonable. Israel's not doing what would be natural and expected for them to do following this incredible investment that God has made in them. So look what else God asks in verse 4. He says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it 
yield wild grapes? So it's a rhetorical question where God says, what more could I have done for you? How much harder could I have worked? It anticipates a negative answer that there's nothing else that God could have done for Israel. More than likely, this has in view all of the great miracles or mighty works that God has performed, unleashing the plagues on Egypt, delivering them through the Red Sea, bringing them into the wilderness, feeding them bread from heaven, water coming out of a rock, you know, protecting them from serpents and their clothes not wearing out, bringing them into the promised land, defeating all their enemies, all these wonderful things that God has done for them leaves Israel without any complaint against God. Well, what's the application for us? If you're like me, you think, I don't have a complaint either. I can't say that God hasn't been gracious to me. I can't say that this happened in my life and it is God's fault and instead of my fault. There's nothing else God could have done for us apart from making us robots and causing us to act against our will. Spurgeon said, O you who profess to be God's people, what more could Christ have done for you? What more could the Holy Spirit have done? What richer promises, what wiser precepts, what kinder providences, what more gracious parent patience could he have shown? So because Israel produced bad fruit, look what happened. Verse 5, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge, it shall be devoured, I'll break down the wall, and it shall be trampled down. So it seems one of the other things that God had done, it wasn't mentioned in verses 1 and 2, was build this hedge of protection around the vineyard. And now God says that he's going to break that hedge down so that the vineyard itself can end up being destroyed. And we know when this happened in Israel's history. Or let me say it like this. We know when this hedge was broken down and then the vineyard of Israel was able to be destroyed or conquered by surrounding enemies, right? 700 B.C., the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. 600 B.C., the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians, and countless Jews are carted off into exile. But I do want you to notice something significant about this verse. Or let me ask a question. Does it say that God destroyed the vineyard? It doesn't. What it says is he destroyed the hedge, or he destroyed the wall, which then allowed the vineyard to be destroyed, which is different. That's passive versus active. And this brings us to lesson three. God only needs to remove his protection to discipline us. God only needs to remove his protection to discipline us. You can think of God disciplining us actively or passively. And if you're a parent, you know what it is to discipline your children passively, right? It's where you let them go forward and make decisions that are bad. You don't even have to actively do anything to see your children suffer the consequences of their decisions. And God similarly can discipline us actively or passively. I've heard it said that one of the very worst things God can do when he wants to discipline us is give us our will, right? You can feel like God's will is difficult. The only thing that's always going to be more difficult than God's will is our own will. Well, when God disciplines us pass actively, you know, you get, the, you get the speeding ticket for speeding, you lose your job because of your embezzling money, or you lose that relationship because you're slandering. Those can all be active forms of discipline. But God can discipline us passively by doing in our lives what he did here with the vineyard of Israel, simply removing that hedge of protection that's around us. Have you ever reflected on how much God has kept out of your life to protect you 
or how much God has kept out of your life as one of his greatest graces? Or have you ever thought about what you could be exposed to or what could be introduced into your life if God didn't want to be gracious to you, if that hedge of protection was removed and he allowed you to experience that? I don't want you to wonder if God works this way. We actually have an example, not with a nation. In Isaiah 5, we're seeing God do this with a nation, but you could wonder, well, would God do this with a person? We have a discussion of this with a person. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. James 5, it'll take a little bit to get to it. James 5:11. you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. And then listen to this, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now we know the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we could, ex- but it's particularly shocking to read about God being compassionate and merciful in a verse that's about whom? Job. Did you catch that? Listen to this. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If you want to think about God's compassion and mercy, you probably think about him forgiving Manasseh. You think about him forgiving the Ninevites. Maybe you think about him forgiving David's adultery and murder, even though David suffered many family problems. He should have been killed twice over according to God's law as punishment for his sin. You can think about the prodigal son and the father receiving him back. You can think about Jesus praying that God forgives the men who are crucifying him. All incredible examples of God's compassion and mercy. My suspicion is if someone said to you, hey, can you give me a biblical example of God being compassionate and merciful, you're probably not going to take him where? To the book of Job. In fact, we could argue that the book of Job makes God look like he's not compassionate and merciful. We tend to think that if God was compassionate and merciful, he would not let someone experience trials, especially not the kind of trials that Job experienced. And so it begs the question, how can James 5.11 say that God is compassionate and merciful in Job's life, Job of all people? And the answer, at least part of the reason, aside probably from how much God blessed him at the end of the book after all the trials were over, relates to the hedge of protection that God had put around Job. Now, that might sound shocking to you. You might not be particularly comfortable with the hedge of protection that God put around Job, or maybe you're listening to that and you kind of wish the hedge was higher, right? Protected him a little bit more than it did. But listen to this. Job 1.9, Satan said to the Lord, does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on other side and every side? So Satan said that Job only feared God because of how much God was protecting not just Job, but it seems like his house and everything else associated with Job. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, Job will curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, so it seems here that God removed some of that hedge, behold, all all he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So we see that God removed some of the hedge, but still maintained quite a bit of it. Because God said, well, you can destroy some of what he has, but you better not. You can't touch him. There's enough hedge left that Satan could not do anything to Job physically. He could not harm him, or at least until the next chapter, right? Because then in the next chapter, Satan comes back to God. And the Lord said to Satan, now, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So again, you might not be comfortable with it, but the hedge has been lowered, where now Satan can afflict Job physically, 
but he can't kill him. He can't take his life from him. So there was still enough hedge around him that God told Satan, you must make sure that he remains alive. The reason I'm showing you this is it illustrates what God did with Israel, but instead with a, not a nation, but with a person. Look at Isaiah 5, 5 one more time. I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge like he did with Job. It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Job was a real man. Israel was and still is today a real nation. God had a hedge of protection around both. All he had to do was remove that hedge and they suffered. Job suffered. The nation of Israel suffered or the vineyards suffered. All God has to do in our lives is remove that hedge of protection. He can do the same with us that he did with Job or that he did with Israel. It makes me want to remain in God's will. It makes me want to remain in the place that I believe I'll experience the most protection from God. And I would say if you're a young person, your life is fairly straightforward. I know I've said this before, it is probably good for every young person to be reminded of this, that if you want that hedge of protection, that it remains for you under the authority of your parents. I don't know that there's any safer place for children to be than under the authority of their parents. And it's not that I think parents are perfect. I'm the first to tell you that I've frequently had to ask my children to forgiveness, for forgiveness. Took them out a couple weeks ago even to pizza after bowling with them looking forward to the opportunity i'm not kidding to give my get my family together after the pizza was delivered pray before we eat and then tell them hey i need to ask you guys to forgive me please forgive me i wish i was more patient i'm con- I, i'm convicted that i have haven't been gentler with you guys you know please forgive me for this so the first one to admit that we struggle as parents we sin we fail our children but the reality is god is going to work for blessing and grace toward those children who choose to honor their parents regardless of those parents imperfection it's the commandment with a promise it's the the language of ephesians 6 you can read it for yourself that god reminds children this is the commandment that has a promise you want a long fruitful life then you strive to obey your parents or honor them as you get older now as this chapter goes on i want you to notice the desolation that's described coming upon the vineyard in verse 6. God says, I'm going to make it a waste. It will not be pruned. It will not be hoed. Briars, thorns are going to end up growing up. And if you just pause there, this is clearly describing the land of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah, after being invaded. And if you remember how bad it was, after the Jews returned from their exile in Babylon, they came back to a desolate Jerusalem when they came back under Ezra and Zerubbabel. But even 100 years later, after being in the land for one century, in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah was so distraught before the king because the city still didn't have what? Speaking of hedges, a wall. So my point is the desolation that's described in this verse, you know, the briars and thorns growing up, this is what happens in a place that's been desolate that's what happened because of the assyrians attacking the northern kingdom babylon attacking the southern kingdom but even when the jews came back and had been in the land for one century the city itself still did not even have walls so that was the fulfillment of this verse the rest of the verse i'll command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it the mosaic covenant that god made with israel was a conditional covenant it was not a grace-based 
covenant. It was a law-based covenant, conditional on their obedience or disobedience. If they did this, then this happened. If they obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, then they were punished. And one of the clearest blessings associated with obedience was rain. And one of the clearest curses associated with disobedience was the lack of rain. Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord will open to you as good treasury the heavens to give rain in its season. If Israel is disobedient, God withheld rain. Deuteronomy 28, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord will not make the rain of, excuse me, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder or dust. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you're destroyed. That's what's in verse 6. He says, I'll command the clouds that they bring forth no rain as a consequence or curse for their disobedience. Our last verse, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. He looks to the vineyard for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this describes the good fruit God wanted, justice and righteousness, and then the bad fruit that was produced, bloodshed and outcries. More than likely, outcry is referring to people crying out because of violence being done to them. There's a very fascinating play on words in this verse. If you have a study Bible, more than likely it makes note of this. The Hebrew, because the words sound very similar. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. The Hebrew word for bloodshed is mishpak. The Hebrew word for justice is sedekah. The Hebrew word for outcry is seyakah. So this word play shows that Israel's sin didn't simply prevent them from reaching a standard. It's not like they were supposed to get to here, but instead they got to here. This word play shows that there was supposed to be justice, but instead there was bloodshed. That instead of Israel, instead of producing righteousness, they ended up producing violence. And so the idea is Israel's sin didn't just fail to live up to God, what God wanted. Israel's sin actually distorted. It changed righteousness to unrighteousness. It changed justice to bloodshed. And now, with these verses, we have the foundation that we need to understand the parable that Jesus preached in Luke 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we won't turn back to Isaiah 5. So this is Jesus's parable of the vineyard owner. If you've never read it, we won't finish it this morning. I'd encourage you to go home and read it as a family. I'll remind you of the context while you're turning to Luke 20. So the religious leaders just finished questioning Jesus's authority. You might remember that from the previous sermon. Jesus responded by preaching this parable, but you need to know this. Jesus is not preaching this parable to the religious leaders. He's preaching the parable to people to warn them about the religious leaders. We'll see that he's talking to the people when he preaches this. Look at verse 9. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants, and then he went into another country for a long while. So we know now from Isaiah 5, Jesus's listeners would have known from Isaiah 5, and there are other places in the Old Testament that also compare Israel with a vineyard, that as Jesus preaches this parable about a vineyard, Israel is in view. Israel's the vineyard, God the Father is the owner. And I, ha I can't even say God, because one way that this builds on Isaiah 5 is this vineyard owner has a 
son. So we can't just say the vineyard owner is God. We need to be more specific and say the first person of the triune nature, God the Father, because later on he sends his son. This farming arrangement, it was a common practice in Jesus' day, especially in the areas around Galilee. The areas around Galilee contained these, va- these vast estates owned by foreigners who lived far away. They would give out the care of their land to people or to tenants when they, and then they traveled and stayed back home. The Greek word for tenants here, it's actually georgos, georgos, and it literally means workers of the soil. Now, you can imagine this. Because the owners of the land lived so far away, and they didn't have the communication that we have today, they didn't have email, they didn't have texting, they didn't have Zoom calls, they couldn't tell tenants, hey, just walk around and take your phone and turn it around and do a video of the land or text me pictures so that I can see how well things are growing or how well you're caring for everything. Because of that, it meant two things. First, the owners, it's a stewardship, really. They had to trust the responsibility, the care, the cooperation and honesty of the tenants who are managing this land for them. And then the second thing that it meant is that these tenants were able to enjoy a considerable amount of freedom because they did not have the owners standing there looking over their shoulders, they're miles away, back at their homes, knowing that they're not going to be back for weeks or perhaps months. The owner did return to his home, but of course there would be this understanding that at harvest time or after harvest time, the owner is going to come or he is going to send servants who expect or fruit to be given or passed along to the owner, which is exactly what we see in the next verse. Verse 10, when the time came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants so that they, the tenants, would give him, the owner, some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now we have to pause here in the middle of this verse because it's as far as we can get this week. We can't go any further because we need to deal with one of the main lessons that's being taught by both the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 as well as the parable of the wicked tenants here in Luke 20. One of the themes or one of the main points that's driven home by both of these passages is that the owner or God expects fruit from his vineyards or from his people. And this brings us to our last lesson, lesson four, God expects fruit. You see it in Isaiah 5 and in Luke 20, he comes looking for good fruit from his vineyards or from his people. One of the conversations Katie and I regularly have as our children are growing up relates to the maturity or what we can expect from them. And if you're a parent, you've done the same thing. You're trying to determine if the things that you're seeing from your children are reasonable because of their age or instead might be a reflection of their immaturity or something that you need to discipline. Basically, you're wondering, should I be expecting more from my children at this age? And the reason I mention that is sometimes I think God could be like that with us as his people or as his vineyards. Are we producing what we should be producing at this age or season of our Christian lives? Well, if you look in this verse, you see something that tells us God isn't expecting fruit or more maturity from us than we should be able to produce. Look at the beginning of the verse. It says, when the time came. Do you see that? When the time came. That's when the owner sent the tenants to get fruit. It wasn't premature. 
The owner did not have unreasonable expectations for his vineyard or his people. He did not expect them to be able to grow or produce fruit that would have exceeded their maturity. He expects the fruit or maturity that's reasonable for their age or for their season. God will not expect us to produce fruit that we're not ready to produce yet. But at the same time, because of all that God has done for his vineyard, Israel in the Old Testament and us in the New Testament, it is evident that God still expects fruit. The longer I preach and the older my children become, the greater parallels I see between parenting and probably God's relationship with us. There's this tension, there's this balance. God is not expecting fruit that's beyond our maturity, but he is still expecting fruit. The New Testament passage that supports this best is James 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, please. That'll be the last place we turn this morning. So after Paul's epistles, you've got Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Turn to James numeral 2. We don't have time to read all the verses, but I do want to draw your attention to some of them regarding God's expectation for us to produce fruit, or we could say work. Those are used interchangeably. So here's the context if you're still turning there. So he, after Paul's epistles, Hebrews, James, Peter, James numeral 2. In verses 14 to 26, James contrasts faith. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but there are two types of faith. There is a living faith, there's a dead faith. There is a saving faith, there's an unsaving faith. There is a faith or there is a belief that is non-salvific or that does not save. James gives two examples of people who had a saving faith. And what does a saving faith do? Well, it produces. There is fruit or there's works as a result of that faith. And James gives us examples of two individuals with saving faith. And not only that, he gives us examples of the fruit or work that's produced in their lives as a result of their faith. First, he mentions Abraham. Look in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works or fruit when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So Abraham was not saved because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but the fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac is evidence that he was saved. I feel like this has been a theme recently in our sermons. We don't do good works to be saved, but we do good works because we are saved. The second example is Rahab. Look in verse 25. He says, In the same way wasn't Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So again, Rahab, she was not saved because she hid these spies, but we would say that Rahab hid the spies because she was saved. And James talks about unsaving faith that lacks fruit or works. Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is a dead faith. Again in verse 26. Repeats the same thing to make sure we don't miss it. As the, body is without, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So this is faith. He does call it faith. Or he does call it belief. But it's a non-saving, non-salvific faith. Because it, and that's evidenced by the lack of fruit or works. And you could say, well, James gave an example of individuals with saving faith and the fruit produced in Abraham and Rahab. Does James give us an example of individuals with unsaving faith? He does, the demonic realm. If you look at verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe or have faith and shudder. No atheist demons, right? I think I've said before, every time when you read the Gospels and you hear from demons, they have incredible theology. They always show up declaring, and the same in Acts, when they possess people. They show up declaring Paul's greatness. They identify Jesus as the Holy One of Israel. There are no atheist demons, no demons with bad theology. But the point is, if you have faith that doesn't produce any works, doesn't produce any fruit, then you have faith that the demonic realm has. Nobody should be thrilled about having faith that doesn't produce works. Nobody should be able to say, well, I'm saved by faith, so it doesn't matter that there's no evidence from my life. And if you were to tell me that you don't see fruit from my life, then that means you're legalistic and you're preaching salvation by works. That's not true. This passage makes it abundantly clear that if individuals are saved, then that faith that saves them will be living and will produce fruit or works as evidence. Now, I want to conclude by leaving you with some encouragement regarding fruit. Listen to what Jesus said, John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The reason I want to mention this is I think you could listen to a sermon like this and you could be convicted and think that it's a matter of effort. You need to go home and try harder, do more, produce more fruit, maybe even question whether you're saved because there is no fruit or works in your life. There can be truth to that. I don't think that people who have no fruit in their lives should be that confident in their salvation because of these verses in James 2 and others that make the same point. But John 15, 5 provides this nice balance. This analogy is fitting because branches don't work hard to produce fruit. Fruit is something that branches naturally produce if they're what? If they're attached to the tree, right? Well, I think the point is, and I believe this is why Jesus said this, similarly, we don't have to work hard to produce fruit. It is not a matter of human effort. It is simply a matter of being attached to the tree. Or if we want to use the language that Jesus used, abiding in him, resting in him, being attached to him. And why is that? Why would fruit or works be such a natural byproduct for people who are abiding in Christ? because it means you're thankful for him when you think about what jesus has done for you you don't become convinced that you have to try harder you become convinced that you want to do these things for him out of thankfulness a heart of worship if you're thankful for what jesus has done for you it will not be difficult to serve him and produce fruit you'll be motivated by your love for him it's very similar to other relationships in our lives. If you think about your relationship with your spouse, think about your relationship with your children. If you're a child, think about your relationship with your parents. You don't want to please them or do things for the important people in your life because you think it earns your relationship with them. You want to do things for the important people in your life because you love them. It is an overflow, an outpouring, a byproduct of your affection for them. And similarly, you're not straining, you're not striving, you don't sit at home saying, well, I've got to do all these other things because if I don't, then I'm going to lose this relationship. You say, well, I love this person. I look for opportunities to bless them or to serve them. It is a joy, it's a privilege. And similarly, it is the same in our relationships with Christ. My heart would be that you don't leave here feeling like you've got to strain and strive. My heart would be that you would leave here thinking what a joy and privilege it is 
for me to serve Christ, to produce fruit or works because of all that he's done for me. Don't leave here thinking about what you have to do for Jesus. Leave here thinking about what you get to do for him because of what he has done for you. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be at front after service and it would be a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for Christ and what he's done for us. I pray that would be one of the messages that people hear from this sermon, one of the points, that it's a joy and a privilege to serve Christ. It's not something that we must do, but it's something that we get to do. But I would also pray, Lord, that if there are anyone here with a dead faith, perhaps the, the faith of James 2.19 that demons have, then I pray, Lord, that they would be convicted, that you would grant them living faith, that you would open their hearts to the gospel. Help us to examine the fruit in our lives, look for any of that wild fruit that uh, all of us produce to some extent. Grant us repentance and growth from that to replace that with good fruit. I do thank you, Lord, for the privilege of serving Christ, not to be saved, but because we are saved and it's an outpouring of our worship. We're, we rejoice over what he's done for us, Lord, and count it an honor and privilege to be your children. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.